Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to And The Update Is. I'm your host, Paige MacDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Sony Music's acquisition of artist services company AWOL has been fully cleared by the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. Universal Music UK has confirmed that its EMI and capital labels are uniting under the joint leadership of Rebecca Allen and Joe Charrington, effective immediately. Tempo Music, which is the music rights acquiring fund launched by private equity giant Providence, is selling its music catalog and it's expected to go for around $500 million. Believe revenues hit $682 million in 2021. The Financial Times has reported that Spotify is drawing up plans to add blockchain technology and non-fungible tokens to its streaming service. After Snoop Dogg bought the iconic Death Row Records brand and catalog last month and promising to transform it into an NFT label operating in the metaverse, fans were shocked this weekend to find that several key albums were missing from all streaming services. Universal's Virgin Music has struck a global partnership with Australia's Mushroom Group. UMG's Web3 label 1022PM has joined Bored Ape Yacht Club's NFT community. Deezer has celebrated its 15th anniversary by opening new headquarters in central Paris. Pulse Music Group has formed a joint publishing venture with songwriter and producer Stara. FPI, which represents the recording industry worldwide, has opened a new Southeast Asia regional office in Singapore. Trayvon Williams has joined Encore Recordings as its vice president and head of streaming. TikTok has now confirmed that Believe-owned digital distribution platform TuneCore has been picked as its distribution partner for SoundOn. Jonathan Abin has been named VP of Product Distribution Services at the Swiss music fintech company Utopia Music. Ray Alba and Nathan Shepard have been named Senior Vice Presidents of Marketing at Capitol Records, the flagship label of Capital Music Group. Sony Music has acquired a minority stake in specialist Latin music label WK Records. 
A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's exciting new episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's aspiring Pulitzer Prize winning, multi-Grammy receiving, Emmy Award collecting, Oscar nominated, songwriter, composer, lyricist, actor, and director has already earned the MacArthur Foundation Award and been adorned with the Kennedy Center Honors Medal thing. His musicals have garnered 11 Tony Awards and sold a gajillion albums. His movies have been seen by hundreds of millions of people. And we're recording this, as we're recording this, he's sitting on top of both the Billboard singles and album chart for seven and five straight weeks, respectively. This collaborator has done most of it being a 100% soul writer. And yet, he's acted in shows and movies he didn't write. He's directed movies he didn't write. He's been a part of an ensemble of friends and colleagues on stage without demanding any more of the spotlight than his peers. All the way from Washington Heights, I don't know, that's terrible, I'm sorry, but this advocate philanthropist, (laughs) husband, and father is a champion of education, arts, and social justice. And the writer is my friend, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hi, Ross. So, um, why are you, why are you humble? (laughs) Why? Because the moment you stop being humble, it all goes away. I've seen, uh, I've seen the movies too many times. And, and the fun part for me is in, it's always in sort of what I can learn and what I can discover. And so if you, if you're always kind of in a student mentality, you're, you, you can't get too big for your britches. You're always just, you know, I, I always think when I was a kid, there was a commercial for the Apex Technical Institute. That was like the commercial on like network TV. And it was the way they phrased it was like, you learn a tool and then it goes into your toolbox. After 22 months, you've got a toolbox. Like that's kind of how I see working. Um, like every time I work on a new project, I, I get to learn from someone new and and get a new tool that goes in my toolbox. One of the cool things about theater is that it it lives. You're constantly making changes. Even by changing the cast, you change a musical. It's it's this living thing versus releasing a song, which goes out into the universe sort of as is. You master it, and then that doesn't change. Once it's out there, that recording stays the same, but there's like a life to theater. And I think a lot of people... Um, who do recorded music don't go back and listen to their music once it's released. You know, how do you how do you perceive your art once it's out in the world? Oh, that's interesting. Um yeah, because I, there's there's a there's an analog to be made between recorded music and recorded film, right? There's actors who also claim like they don't watch what they've been in once they've been in it. And I always thought that was bullshit until I actually acted in a movie for real. And you realize your part of the journey is such a small part of the journey. Um, you know, you're 
your days and where you were that day. Like when I watch a movie I've been in, I remember <laughs> where I was on the day. I remember what I was coming from, what the challenges were. And you really do just remember the process more than the final product. So I finally understood where those actors who I thought were being falsely humble uh, were coming from. Like, oh, that that thing that came out is different from, and again, whether it's a song or a movie, like where we were in the studio that day, where that lyric came from, when that engineer happened upon that sound. Um, and so, I mean, I, and I think coming up in the theater, I just, uh, a, a couple of things. One, I never see it that way because I'm writing something, or I started out by writing things that were meant to be performed live every night. Um, and one, as a result, like my demos suck. <laughs> like I don't put a lot of polish into them because I know they are just the uh, template um, that we're going to build on. They really are just sort of like the architect's first lines um, and we're going to go fill all that in later. Um, but I also, um, you know, I also think when you grow up with like Weird Al Yankovic as your hero, you you grow up learning that genre is fluid, that uh, genre is the instruments you decide to use on it, and that melody and uh, and rhythm and harmony are the things that really make something special. And they're special whether they're in polka form <laughs> or they're in their original form. Um, but you you really learn that like, oh, those those things have to be really solid. And then you can stretch and mutate them in any direction uh, possible. One of the best parts also of theater and animated film is that your jobs are all siloed and yet there's a lot of collaboration. And what I mean by that is that what you're doing is actually what a songwriter does. You know, you even the demos are further than what a, a legal definition of what songs are. And in our in, in a my in my day job of going to studios and writing songs you know, if you watch Get Back by the Beatles, like all nine of those people in the studio now would be considered co-writers of Let It Be, even though it's clear who the driving force was in that song. And you're Yeah, Ringo's asleep when Get Back comes to <laughs> What was Paul. that? He's like asleep Ringo's like asleep at his drums in the moment, which thank goodness we have. We actually see the moment where like a blues riff specifies into get back. It happens in real time in front of us. It's such a gift. And you, and what you're doing is like you're you're creating songs where what you said like the everyone builds on the song. You're the architect. And in music in in pop music that um those definitions of people's jobs have gotten really gray. Mm. And in theater and in in animated film that you're working in, that you know that the songs are written by you, and then whoever orchestrates it and whoever produces it is the producer and orchestrator of it. It doesn't mean they don't have some input, just like you don't have some input on their work. But it becomes collaborative, but yet everyone is respectful of the the tradition of it. Yeah, I think that's true, and I also think that's clearer. I, I really like that aspect of it. I like, um, it, it's like playing basketball. Like you may all play different positions, but like 
you do whatever it is to get the ball to the hole. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there's a point guard and there's a left guy and there's a right guy or you're playing zone, but like, you're all just trying to get the ball in the hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, I think it's clearer when we all have our, our roles. I love being a part of a team and I love when I'm working on a show and my job is to bring in the song. I know. Alex Lackamore is going to have three good ideas I never had. I know Tommy's going to have three great insights and ideas I never had. Um, I know even just the debate will force us to find more clarity um, because that's that's what you're really looking for is like the specificity that takes this um, to another place and to a, to the clearest place where only this song can express it. It's not, I don't know how to write like a love song. I don't know how to write a ballad. But if you tell me she's coming home from her first year abroad and she's just up, she's scared of disappointing her parents and she's been flirting with this guy all her life and this might be the moment where it's going to the next level and they're on 175th Street. Now I have all these details to work with. Um, you know, artists don't want freedom. <laughs> artists don't want to look at a blank piece of paper. They want creative restrictions that allow them to find creative solutions that take us to a new place. I want to tell, you know, in in every podcast we've done, we've really gone through a little bit of, of history of who the people are, and that's what makes this exciting to me. I think what's unusual in your case is that your life is so well documented. You and I are <laughs> roughly the same age, and there is... Uh, there, there's, you know, like two pages on my history, and there's literally documentary films about yours. So <laughs> you don't have to go through everything, but let's just start from the beginning. You were born. I was born in Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. Um, my uh, January sixteenth, nineteen eighty. Um, we lived in NYU graduate housing because my parents were both still in grad school. Uh, when uh, I was born, um, and then we moved up to uh, Inwood, just north of Washington Heights, when I was like two years old, and um, and there I stayed, and there I remain. I'm now, you know, a, a, a few dozen blocks south in Washington Heights proper, um, but yeah, I grew up uptown New York. Um, y- your parents aren't musicians, in uh, professionally, what? introduce you to the idea of, you know, I mean, again, like being the same age, one of the perks of growing up in the eighties, you have MTV, you have like all these like introductions to, to music outside of the place we were raised, but you were kind of raised near a lot, a lot of the, the heart of hip hop. Yeah, and, the and I'm just a little younger than hip hop. So like I have a cool older sister who takes me to beat street and crush groove. And Disorderlies, I remember the day Disorderlies came out on video. Um, and and like early 80s hip-hop genre-defining things, I had the brown and tan Fisher Place, Fisher Price like record player that everyone had. So I was scratching green eggs and ham and doing what I was seeing in those videos. Um, and And also my parents had like a pretty extensive like Broadway cast album collection. Like my mom bumped Camelot loud. My dad bumped Man of La Mancha loud, along with Gran Combo and Fania All Stars and all of the great sort of 
Caribbean Latin music and Afro uh, Cuban music coming out of, uh, you know, uh, the the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, so that's the brew. And I think that's the brew that keeps showing up uh, in my work. Um, my first time on stage uh, was the elementary school talent show and I lip synced Land of Confusion by Genesis. <laughs> so it's this like mix of like 80s, 80s music and um and Latin music. And then, you know, I, I, I've, I've said this before, but like a profound thing for me was seeing how much music moved my parents. Like I remember my mom bawling listening to Bring Him Home from Les Miserables. Um, and just, you know, when you see something that can make your parents feel, um, I think that's that becomes a thing that becomes an avenue to you. I want to make people feel like that. I want to move people in that way. What were they studying in grad school? They met uh, in grad school at NYU uh, for uh, psychology. Um, my dad's a prodigy and he had graduated college undergrad by the time he was 18 years old. And he got recruited out of Puerto Rico um, with a full ride to NYU. They, you know, The NYU postdoc program was basically... It was one of those early diversity and inclusion efforts. They were like, we want to really walk the walk. Um, and they recruited him to study psychology in New York. And he came here not speaking English and living with an aunt uh, in the village. And um, and my mom grew up in, my mom was born in Puerto Rico, but grew up in New Jersey. Uh, and they, she already had uh, my sister uh, when they met uh, in grad school. And, um, and and my dad always meant to go back to the island and 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 then here we stayed. Did you feel pressure to be something other than a musician? Yeah. Well, Reuben Blades is the great curse for overachieving parents everywhere because Reuben Blades is a legendary songwriter, an incredible actor, um, and he also went to Harvard Law School. (laughs) So it was constantly thrown like, that's great that you're creative, but Reuben Blades went to law school, like doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt. I was like... it would hurt for me <laughs> um, because for better or worse, I cannot care about what I do not care about. And I, I remember one of the biggest fights uh, I had with my dad was um, going into my senior year, him trying to make me take AP statistics. And he goes, it'll make you look well-rounded. I'm not well-rounded. <laughs> I care about these things. Um, and I don't think any college is going to let me get in on my straight C average uh, in math. And I don't think we should add another C to the pile. Let me take creative writing with Kim Zegers, please. I took it be statistics. Um, but uh, it was, you know, that was, that was the thing. It was, they really, you know, and, and it comes out of fear, right? Like we live in one of the, you know, toughest to, to, to make a living in the arts is 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 like winning the lotto and um and they were scared for me so they really wanted me to do something um, that would pay the rent uh one of your talents is recalling lyrics and you know was that evident already going into I assume by the time you're a senior in 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 high school and your dad wants you to do AP statistics that you're pleasantly able to just recite all kinds of lyrics and stuff. In the meantime, 
I, this is something that you, is it just natural to you or did you actually have to work at, at that skill set? I, I, I think it's something that comes naturally to kids and something kids really like. And when you grow up, you either grow out of it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Like when I saw kids beginning to like memorize the Hamilton soundtrack and make it a point of pride that they memorize guns and ships, I remember thinking this is a variation on my friends and I memorizing the Rent soundtrack and assigning parts. I remember there was a commercial when I was a kid for McDonald's that was like, Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal McNuggets, tasty golden french fries, regular or larger size of salad, chef or garden or a chicken salad, oriental. Um, and like, you were the man if you could do the whole commercial. Um, and uh, like, who was the first to memorize We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel? Um, I guess I went to a school with nerds where like that was like that made you cool <laughs> to be able to sing these things. Um, so that was just sort of, uh, yeah, that was something that, um, wh- when I see kids saying they, they're, they're trying to memorize Encanto, they're trying to memorize Hamilton. I was like, Oh, that's a thing we like to do as kids. Yeah. And you either grow out of it or you don't. I have never grown out of it. I think it's funny when you, when, uh, that that idea of being able to 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 memorize something like Hamilton and having, you know, I was gonna I, one of the things that I have later in this is is the idea that you're constantly hearing references to Hamilton everywhere you go in the room where it happens in the room where it happens in the room where it happens and you know exactly what it is and it's one thing where you walk around and you hear a hit song at a at a barbecue that you write like that's awesome that's really cool it's different when you're watching politicians in the middle of debates quoting you um it's one thing when kids are memorizing your lyrics, but it feels like everybody's memorizing your lyrics. Is there a point where, I guess there are probably certain people that even when they recite your own lyrics to you, where you're like, no, that wasn't the intention, or do you let it go, and are you like, this is cool that it's part of the American lexicon? Yeah, you you really do... Um... It's it's a, an imperfect cliche, but the fact is, like, once it's out, it's in the world. Like, your kid has moved out of the house, and you can love them, but <laughs> and support them, but they're gonna do what they do out in the world, and um, and that's you know ninety percent of the time, like, amazing, and it's wonderful to. Um, I, I mean, I could pull t- like right now. I'm in a mode where. of my texts are just people sending me their kids listening to Encanto or singing along to Encanto. Um, and, and that's just absolutely, uh, joyous. And, and then I will also get like someone sending me a tweet of like, we don't talk about your local sports team's hero. And yeah. It's just like, that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> and I don't even understand the reference because I don't know your local sports team. Um, but, um, that's, that's also part of it. Like it, it, it kind of just lives in the world and, uh, you can kind of, you just kind of sit here as the parent on the shore <laughs> waving at the kids and what they're doing out there. Yeah. Part of the joy of having a discography that's as extensive as yours and, you know, at, at our age, like where we've yeah. been around enough where you have some songs that it's cool when it's some kid's first song. You know, and you're like, and the amount of people who send you that video of like their kid dancing to the song or singing to the song, you're like, man, that's this. I remember 
you know, that same brown vinyl player that could play basically small, like, singles and listening to songs from the big chair and all these things. And it's like, to me, those, those albums were Encanto. Those albums were the songs that, you know, the hits that you, you write and maybe even it differently than Hamilton like that. This, this is something where a lot of kids will grow up and be like, this was my first song. Just like all the Disney songs were for us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And on the other side of your question, like, when the vaccine started coming out, I think every other tweet to me was like, you should do a vaccine commercial to my shot. And it was like, well, I, I don't have to because you are all having the same idea yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And you all are thinking you're the first to have the idea. So it's there. Like, it's actually just there for you to have. Yeah. <laughs> like, for me to do it would be a hat on a hat right. um, because you're all all sending it to me. Okay, so let's go back to some of your education. You know, you you uh your dad is like you should go and have AP statistics and you're thinking oh, I'm a musician. At that point were you already applying to Wesleyan? Were you already applying to schools to be in musical theater? You know, what was what was the trajectory at that point? Yeah, my my goal by the time I'd reached uh, senior year of high school was I wanted to, st- I, I was really passionate about film and about theater. Um, and again, in choosing, you, you choose the right heroes, hopefully. Like my hero at that moment was, was Robert Rodriguez, who had maxed out his credit cards, sold blood and like made his Hollywood calling card for $8,000 with El Mariachi. Uh, and then went and like blew it up and made like a, an amazing, uh, movie called Desperado. And he wrote a book called Rebel Without a Crew of being like, you can just start making things. Like, just start making things immediately. You don't need anyone's permission to to make things. Um, but I was also spending... The school year was basically... My school year was basically built around whatever the musical was that spring. Uh, and then anything else I could fit in. Um, and so I wanted to... I, I was passionate about both these things. Um, when you're passionate about both of those, the list of schools gets pretty small um, that have great departments in both. Um, I landed at Wesleyan because I fell in love with film. I actually, when I was uh, accepted, I snuck into a Hitchcock class uh, that was a senior level only Hitchcock class. And uh, my friend Antonia, who was already a freshman there, uh, got me in. And I'll never forget Janine Basinger, who was like the legendary chair of that department. She looked at me and said, some of you aren't supposed to be here, but this is such a rare print of Otto Preminger's Buddy Lake is Missing, that I'm not going to begrudge anyone the chance to see it if they get to see it. It's a really good print. And we watched this amazing, auto, very like little-known Otto Preminger movie. And this class that was supposed to go from 1 to 4 went to 5.30 just because the discussion was so good, no one left. And I went, this is where I want to go because it, like the passion of the students is determining what's happening in the classroom. And I never really experienced anything like that before. I almost didn't make my bus back to New York uh, from Middletown because it ran so long. And, um, and, and the other great thing about Wesleyan is like, there actually isn't a musical theater department. You have to build your own. You, you learn a lot about the history of theater and a lot about avant-garde theater and sort of modern theater techniques. But I had to, I was kind of, 
a, a very big fish in a small pond because I wanted to write original musicals and no one else was doing that. So I was just kind of um, this weird little unicorn, um, you know, kind of reaching across different disciplines and finding musicians from the incredible world music department at Wesleyan. Um, and so, you know, I have an uncommonly great Latin drummer <laughs> because that's what he's studying. Uh, and so I can write in in the Heights. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so I mean, that was, that was the real gift. And, and, and then I dropped, I took all my film credits, but I dropped film as a major because out of sheer practicality, you have to pay for your own theater, your own senior film. You don't have to pay for your senior theater project. And I went, okay, I'm going to do the thing I don't have to pay for. Yeah. I think also people, like you were saying that people um, expect permission to do something and this is your story not mine but my senior year it was like in my internship program at USC I was like well let me start a record label because I'd already gotten fired from two jobs where I was trying to start a record label I was like let that be my <laughs> internship and I sold that company to EMI when I like when I was 23 because it was a project like I I understand that people don't have to go to colleges but one of the things that you get in a in that kind of institution is um you're supposed to do projects you're supposed to if it's a good program at some point you have to reach and so the fact that there was a program where they said to you you know you either make a film or you're like, well, can I at least make a musical? This is something I want to do. And then you just do it and the school's like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, that's yeah. that's, that's the objective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, and I agree with you that college isn't um, a necessary thing, but the things I think are, are important takeaways that you can get in college are, one, a community of like-minded artists uh, and people who are trying to do the same thing you're doing. I didn't meet Tommy Kale at Wesleyan, but I knew we had mutual friends and I was able to meet him through uh, sort of Wesleyan students who had seen my work. Um, and two, um, the mindset that everything you're taking can feed each other. Um, I think that that was that's the biggest lesson I take away, especially in times when I have to multitask. Of this history of Christianity doesn't seem related to this, uh, you know, this directing one class. But I'm going to learn something really interesting here, and I'm going to bring it over to here. And I find in times when I'm working on more than one project at the same time, if I step back and go, let me pretend I'm in college, <laughs> let me pretend I'm in school, then instead of oh, I have to do all these things that are siloed, I can think about the ways in which I'm thinking about one thing informs the other. The way I'm thinking about this cracks this open. I mean, my 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 most recent example was I, I was writing with Alan Menken on The New Little Mermaid. Alan Menken is Jonathan Larson's generation. Like, if Jonathan Larson were alive today, he'd be 62 years old. Um, he was trying to get his show off Broadway the same time, you know, they were having success with Little Shop of Horrors uh, in New York. And so 
Alan's memories of that time and losing so many friends and a generation of artists to the AIDS virus were really valuable for me as a first-time director in this other project I'm working on. He showed me footage of a songwriting workshop he was a part of. Um, and it was like, Alan, you don't know the gift you've given me in terms of seeing what this looks like because I have to put this on screen in two years. Um, so um, when you can step back as far as... I'm talking about Tick, Tick, Boom, yeah. And so, you know, that bucket list thing of getting to write songs with one of my heroes, Alan Menken, actually became this incredible fount of information for this other project that was set in the era in which Little Mermaid was written. Uh, It's the same time. It's New York in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. So, um, again, I think college helps you with that mindset of, like, stepping back and making connections uh, across different disciplines. Did you get a grade on In the Heights? No, it, that wasn't for school. Oh, and that was because I just needed to, I was just super pregnant and I wanted to write a full-length musical. Um, and I was encouraged by another student named Matthew Graham Smith, who was a senior and I just thought he hung the moon. I just had the biggest crush on him. Um, and he was encouraging, he had kind of created a lab where students would bring in work they were writing. And I brought in three songs and he was like, you have to keep writing this. And I did, hoping he would direct it. Uh, and he was like, I have to direct my senior thesis, man. <laughs> I can't direct like a sophomore project that's just for the student-run theater. And so, but I was so uh, obsessed with finishing it that I, I ended up putting it on. But it was not for credit or anything. The, the, the sort of the best lessons I got out of it were... Um, because it was this Latin-themed musical set in Washington Heights, I had to search all over campus to find my cast. And the weird side effect of that was everyone at that school had a friend in the show. (laughs) And so we were a hit literally by virtue of our cast because, oh, Ralphie's in the show. Oh, Dawn from the student government is in the show um, because I had to really cast a wide net. And that is a lesson that I've taken with me of like, oh, if you cast diversely, like everyone's got a way in. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I, I got a lot of lessons from that, but it was really a homegrown project. When did you meet Tommy? Tommy Kale, uh, friend, friend of the family. Uh, <laughs> friend, of the, friend of the cast. <laughs> friend of the cast. How did you meet Tommy? You said- um, Tommy uh, had, Tommy graduated um, right after my freshman year. We learned years later that we actually shared a light plot um, my freshman year. I was directing a 20-minute musical in a cafe, and he was directing in a gym. And every night, um, because we only had limited... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The resources, they would take my lights away after my show and take them over to the gym where his show was. And he was like, who's this fucking freshman who's taking our light plot every night? Um, but we had uh, mutual friends uh, named John Mailer and Neil Stewart, um, and they were, uh, they were, um, I guess they were two years older than me, because uh, when I was a sophomore putting on Heights, they were seniors, and they really liked the show. They weren't even in the audience. They worked on the staff of the student-run theater. They were sitting in the lighting booth watching the show, uh, and they said, we're going to New York, and we're starting a theater company with our friends Anthony Veneziali and Tommy Kale, who have already graduated. Um, we'd love to talk to you about bringing the show to New York once you graduate. And I said, okay, uh, the cast party's on Home Avenue. Uh, we have a half a keg because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not 21 yet. Um, and, uh, and they were as good as their word. Like my senior year, they came to my senior thesis and I met Tommy for the first time there. He, like their whole crew came. My senior thesis was not very good. Uh, it was a different show <laughs> that will not ever be revived, but, um, I met Tommy Why? there and what? Is it is it is it really that bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, I learned really interesting mistakes <laughs> on it. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, because cause, you know what? Really because I was still working on heights in my head, but I still had to write a thesis. Um, so it's just half baked. Um, but I remember Tommy Kale shaking my hand there, going, enjoy this, and walking out and me being like, Thank you. Wait, that's not a compliment. Um, and then I met him for real for the first time, uh, the week after I graduated Wesleyan, I went to the basement of the drama bookshop where they were painting the walls to turn that storage space into a theater space. They had talked the bookshop owners into letting them make the basement a black box in exchange for making more foot traffic for the shop. And um, if there were a time lapse of that meeting, you would see me sitting with four other dudes and hours later, everyone walking out except me and Tommy who were just still talking. Um, and we, we sort of always joke like that was the beginning of a conversation that we kind of still dip in on every, every other day. Um, how soon after that, because before in the Heights and you can see this, if you ever watched a documentary of we are freestyle love Supreme on Hulu, um, what, when did uh, Freestyle Love Supreme start in in order of like you meet Tommy and all the the feels like dominoes start to fall feels like that yeah when, like you yeah you well he again he he had he created he did the most valuable thing which was he created a home base in the basement of that bookshop and so we began to hire actors and do readings of in the Heights, in that basement. And it was really just us for a year. Um, and Anthony, his other co-creator, booked the venue. <laughs> like, answered phones at the bookshop and booked the venue. And he wasn't creatively involved with Heights, but on every break, he'd come in and freestyle with me. And then when Chris Jackson became a part of the In the Heights family, Chris Jackson started freestyling with us. And so it became this thing of, that we were doing for fun, and Anthony, who comes from a, a, a an improv background, was like, we should do this in front of people. <laughs> uh, 
And I was like, well, we're doing it in front of Tommy. How many more people do you want? Um, but we did it. I think our first show was at the Pit Theater. Um, it was literally to pre-programmed beats that his friend Abe made. When the beat ended, that was the end of that skit. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, we kind of started just like, or it, it was this weird organic side project that becomes the opposing, an incredibly valuable opposing muscle group to my songwriting because um, you're figuring out lyrics and you're figuring out punchlines in real time on stage in front of people. And that only strengthens uh, your work when you go back to your piano. Were you good at um, freestyling before that? Were you no. always? <laughs> so that really, I, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, that I was still. the kid, even in high school, I was the kid who like beatboxed them when they would come to me. I'd be like, no, no, pass it, pass it, pass it, pass it. And, and I learned a lot about my brain and its response to panic in those times because in the early days, I would try to plan punchlines and try to steer things to the punchlines I had in my head. And every time I tried to do that, I'd say the punchline first and then like basically shit the bed for another few minutes. Um, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, and so you really learn, oh, there's no shortcut for just being open and, and receptive to what comes and like building it, building the parachute on your way down. Uh, and now I'm at the point where I can... I can kind of do the the Tariq Black Thought thing of like, I hear the word and I can build to the word, um, but you can't plan punchlines, you're dead. Um, and I know that's how half of rap battles work, um, but for freestyle, it doesn't work. You really have to just be open and let whatever is coming in, go through the filter that is your brain and come back out. In this segment, we'll call it, what would Tommy Kale ask Lynn on And The Writer Is? Oh no. Tommy Kale has a few questions for you. What West Wing character do you think you are? What character do you aspire to be? <laughs> um, I think on my on my best days, I think I'm Sam Seaborn uh and I'm idealistic. Uh you know, I I have had the experience of you wrote that speech in the car, freak. Um, that's uh, that's me on my on my best days, I guess. But 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 more often than not, I relate to Toby, who is his sort of grizzled older <laughs> counterpart. Um, the scene I, I I quote a lot, and the person on the other side of the conversation doesn't know I'm quoting it, um, is when he meets uh, Josh Molina's character for the first time and just starts talking about how much trouble he's having writing, and he says. I'm sorry, I know we've just met, but there's not a lot of people I can talk to about this. <laughs> um, you know, which is, you know, why I'm so happy being on your podcast because you have you have been alone in the room with a blank piece of paper or a keyboard. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's something that um, Richard Schiff does on that show that is so goddamn smart. And I recognized it as something I do, that's something writers do, that you'll see him in scenes where he doesn't have lines and he's going like this. Hmm. Like he's writing in his head, even as things are happening all around him, and his lips are moving, um, and and that's such a tiny, beautiful actorly uh, detail. And uh, so yeah, so that's yeah, I'm a I'm a Sam Seaborn with a Toby rising. Do you think fans of Freestyle Love Supreme will ever see paging Doctor Freud in a show? <laughs> You know, every every show. I hope this is the show. It is a it is a uh, a game I have been pitching for 
maybe 12 years now of where we would get a, an audience member's dream and we would kind of just dig into it as a freestyle crew, kind of a variation on Day in the Life. We did a couple of rehearsals of it in the early aughts and it ate shit and no one will let me do it. <laughs> and he's, he has a few more questions. Um, I'll, I'll just skip to another one. He goes, uh, uh, will there be a sequel to your first feature, Clayton's Friends? Mother. Fucker. <laughs> Lane's <laughs> Friends is literally a VHS movie I made on a sleepover, on several sleepovers in 10th grade. Um, and because IMDb was so lax in its rules in the 90s, I, I, it's on there and I can't get it off. <laughs> That's so um, but no, uh, no, no imminent plans for a Clayton's Friends sequel. Um, okay, we can skip his other questions. All right, so, so Freestyle Love Supreme happens simultaneously with In the Heights. Um, in that time, you meet another major collaborator for you, uh, a guy by the name of Alex Lackamore. Yeah. Um, working with Alex is, I've been, we've been very fortunate. You and I have worked with some, uh, some of the most talented people on the planet, Tommy being one of them. Alex is, uh, is Beethoven. Yeah. The guy is literally the most, maybe the most talented human I've ever met when it comes musically. It's so secondary. It's hard. It's like hard to watch because of how, like, it's so talented that it's like, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. What was your experience meeting that guy? Well, it, again, it was one of those things where everyone else met him first. Um, and they were like, you should meet him. <laughs> Uh, so I, I remember Tommy met him first. And I think the first thing he said to me, and you'll appreciate this, is he's like, if you and I had a kid. <laughs> and it's true. You look at Alex Lackamore, he would be what would happen if you mixed oh, like one of those like yeah, 25 like cent games where you took two of our pictures and made our baby. It would be Alex yeah. Lackamore. <laughs> it's Tommy's hair with a goatee. Um, and, um, but, but really what's, it sort of emerged over years of of collaboration is is he's he really like his his strengths shore up my strengths in such incredibly complementary ways um i am someone who I'm really a big believer in momentum when you're writing like i'm like okay this isn't the right chord yet but I'll find the right chord because, and I'm going to go and I'm chasing this impulse and I'm going to sort of write it down. Alex is the kind of guy who will try out every possible chord under the note before he moves on to the next thing. Like that's just the different ways we approach the piano. Um, and, and, and the fun in that, um, because he's so particular and so fastidious is it forces me, first of all, to be more particular and more fastidious. It, 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 it makes me better. Um, and two, um, we, we, we find each other in between. Like it just forces me to sharpen my instincts on what the song is, which sometimes is not the technically correct thing. Like I'm thinking right now of the transition from the Reynolds pamphlet to Burn, um, which are songs I wrote separately. I think I wrote Burn before I wrote the Reynolds pamphlet, but the Reynolds pamphlet for some reason was like a half step difference from Burn and I was like, well, what if Burn starts over the end of it? Um, and he goes, oh, it's it's a half step difference. And I see him starting to work out the key change, and he's already like way down the road. And I go, no, 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 play it. <laughs> and and you can listen to this on the album if you want. Like it's 
like a half step off and it really rubs. Like it doesn't feel like it's a part of the song. And I was like, we shouldn't fix this. Like we have to trust the rub on this. Um, and, and that's like a great example of how Alex and I work. He is like figuring out the harmony on how to make the math work. And I'm going, do we want to make the math work? <laughs> it's going to, it's really hard to find other collaborators that are that talented once you're in the, once you're used to that. Yeah. It's hard to find other orchestrators, music directors, you know, composers like Alex. In fact, and he asks, and you guys are on the same page, and what would Alex Lackamore ask Lynn on And the Writer Is? He asks this question. He says, well, it's sort of a statement question, but he says, I'd be curious uh, as to how he finds the chord progressions that create the spark for him. Mm. Does he improvise on the keyboard and or let his hands lead? Or does he picture a sound in his head and then realize that chord with his hands? Oh my God. This is like a question Alex and I should talk about in couples counseling. <laughs> yes. Um, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what I'm speaking to, right? Um, because my short answer is I'll take it any way it comes. Um, and sometimes I've got a lyric and I'll really chase the lyric before I commit to any music under it. The most egregious example being my shot, which I wrote those verses took me ages to write them. And I, I really took a long time before I committed to the chord progression that would go under them. Um, and again, th those are hip hop lyrics, so it's a little more latitude. Um, and then there are, um, you know, there's a song like Washington on your side where I just really tried to create as different a beat as possible from anything Hamilton was rapping on. I was like, what's the opposite of everything I've written so far for that character. Cause here are all of his diametric opposites singing together. Uh, and I built that beat from scratch and I was really proud of it. I'm not much of a like hip hop producer. Um, but everything in that, like every snare and hi hat is by hand. Um, and, uh, and I started there. Um, and then just said like, what's the most different flow? from what I've been writing uh, for Hamilton. So I I'll take it any way it comes, um, you know, and then different collaborators force you to work in different ways. When, when, and Alex can appreciate this, when we worked on Bring It On with Andy Blankenbuehler, who was our choreographer, he's got the whole movie in his head, man. And so I, I found really early on that like, if I wrote something that wasn't the literal tempo in his head, He'd like bump up against it. He'd go, I don't know. It's not, it's not quite there. And so I'd be like, sing what you hear. And he would go like, and I would write down, I would like voice memo and work from the beat in his head backwards into whatever storytelling I needed to do. And that was a really great new approach and, um, worked wonders. So, um, the answer is I'll take it any way I can get it. Um, and, uh, and, and it's fun finding new ways to attack the piano. In the Heights goes on to win Tony awards. And all of a sudden there's gotta be some, you know, a, a show that took 10 years from probably when you started it, give or take to, you know, being a, a big success, you know, do you feel like that was the moment where, the monkeys off your shoulders 
that you you kind of made it. It was actually the first performance off Broadway. I felt great because again, my hero in this is Jonathan Larson, who did not live to see the first public performance of Rent and the first time this incredible cast was doing his work for a public. Like that hung heavy over me. I was really superstitious, and the moment it was like, okay, it lives on a stage. It doesn't just exist in my head. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, and that would be sad. But Tommy and Bill and Alex would know what to do. <laughs> They would know how to proceed from here.、Um, I think when I was directing Tick Tick Boom, more than anything, I was chasing the feeling of what does it feel like to have a whole world in your head,、um, and the barriers between. That world existing in your head, and that world that existing in the world, and what that pressure feels like,、um, because it's it's different. You know, first of all, that's pre SoundCloud. That's pre. I can get my music into the world very easily.、Um, you know, John's working on four track recorders, and he needs a producer that believes in him, a director. He needs orchestrators. He needs band. He needs so much to get it out of his head and into the world.、Um, and so, the, the moment it was on stage, I felt that monkey come off. Everything else has yeah, been. There's、written. no question that day of I've only had one show off Broadway, and the day of that, it, Jonathan Larson is on every composer's shoulder. On that day of making sure you get through opening night or at least through previews, and and know that, okay, I worked really hard for this moment, and that you get to see it. And you know, I don't know if I believe in legacy or not yet. I still, I often say I don't because I don't. You know, I know I know kids don't know Paul McCartney is so like why are they going to know you know anything, and.、Uh, But that guy left a legacy on every composer's shoulder. Yeah, I think that's true.、Right. Yeah, and and what's so remarkable is the work speaks for itself. You know, I think in the initial run of Rent, his tragedy was really bound up in the story of the show. But you're not a show that runs for 25 years and in every language in the world and in Cuba and in places where people don't get musicals if it if it can't stand on its own two feet. Um, right. And、um, and it's been amazing to see that and and sort of with tick tick get to be able to tell more of that story. So after in the heights and by the way, I was fortunate enough to see you at Pantages do in the heights. And I, at the time, I hadn't hadn't seen theater in a long time. I'd been in L.A. Had I gone to school in New York, I would have done theater. I went to school in L.A. Ended up in pop music. I I released my first album, but I was doing. Wrong man, the wrong man at home on acoustic guitar, and I would play it for all these people. And this one girl said to me, "You need to see In the Heights." And I was like, "Thank you, that one girl." I, I haven't seen a musical in a long time, and she was like, "I'm gonna take you." And she took me to In the Heights, and it was one of those moments where I didn't feel so alone in the idea of telling narrative stories using contemporary music, and I. I wasn't a, you know, at the time I was a theater kid growing up who then had a, a eight year hiatus there, and it really brought me back into the idea of oh maybe that is the right place, you know, and and I can lead to that at some well, point. Well, that makes me so, really happy, but that's also me just advancing Jonathan Larson's thesis, which was that pop music and theater music can be friends. When rock and roll、yeah. came, they specialized, and I think to the benefit of both. I don't think you get. 
the incredible breadth of material that musicals can be about without Sondheim and Kander and all his contemporaries who really expanded the boundaries of what musical theater could be. Um, but amidst this split, like I think Jonathan's like the grandchild that brought the family back together <laughs> between like pop music and rock music. And uh, those of us who grew up loving David Bowie's stories just as much as Sondheim's stories uh, or Biggie's stories just as much as, uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, you know, we, we're the ones who just want to want to bring it all together again. Hamilton, um, you you spent all this time from, you know, 2008 or so starting Hamilton. There are lots of stories on this, lots of documentaries and for all the right reasons. You know, and I remember I was also fortunate to see that show really early on, on um, but after the public. Once it gets to the public, it has a few changes, but not a ton of changes, it seems. But knowing Tommy, my guess is that you had a shitload of changes for the eight years from starting it to the public. Like just so many, how do you, when you have that much lyrical specificity, how do you mentally cope with having to truly adjust story, story, not lyric, story? Well, in hindsight, it's actually the most fun part, right? Our first preview at the public came in at three hours and 12 minutes. And Tommy did a really smart thing, which was, okay, well, if nothing else, we want this to be shorter than it is. <laughs> like, full stop. So, like, that can help us cut things unemotionally. And he said, let's cut anything that addresses a character we don't meet. And what th what landed square in the sights of that note is these, like, 16 bars I had about John Adams, who is not an onstage character. It's also, like, my hardest 16 bars. And what was so great about cutting that first, like literally from first preview to second preview, was it also sent a message to the rest of the cast, like any cuts we're making are not about you and they're not about your performance because we just cut the composer's best 16 bars <laughs> um, and, and happy to do it. Um, and we say, what's the one line we need? Sit down, John, you fat motherfucker. And like, we keep it moving. Um, and, um, and we just kind of... It, a couple of things on Hamilton. There's not as many cut songs because we we were better at it than we were with Heights. It was not an original story the way Heights was, where when you have original characters, they can do anything you want. Whereas like we have the spine of this guy's life and, and American history. Um, and two, and and you're gonna you're gonna appreciate this when, whenever the wrong man hits its next life. And I have it in a different way because I was on stage. I had six or so months of like literally feeling what are the 100% reactions? What are the 75% reactions? What are the reactions we only get when it's a hip hop crowd? What are the reactions we only get when it's a musical theater crowd? Um, and like, what's the can't miss stuff? So by the end of Off-Broadway, I had a list of 10 things. And some of those were philosophical and some of those were like, we got to change the French and Indian war line. <laughs> um, and, but it was very clear because I experienced every performance and I knew, I knew the degrees to which things needed work. There's an assumption by most people that Hamilton's a given, that it was so good 
and I know that there were all kinds of people who, you know, it's success has a, a thousand fathers, failure has none. And there are a lot of people who take credit for it and there are all these things, but I, it's always these anecdotal stories that, that really interest me where Anthony Ramos, one of the original characters, Hamilton's son, um, he was. He told me where he was living in this, you know, a, apartment at the time when you guys were doing the public, where you could almost literally touch like the walls with his arms if his arms were stretched out. And here's a guy who's now the lead in a bunch of movies. He's going to be a huge movie star. Yeah, he's he's in Transformers. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be in Marvel. <laughs> been fortunate enough to write with him a bunch and have some songs out with him. But it's so interesting that. The commitment, not just by the creators, but by the entire entirety of a production to make a production work. Yeah. The dedication by all of them is so inspiring because it, it galvanizes all yeah. these people. And, and going through a process like that together, too, going through not just eight shows a week, which is an incredibly bonding experience, but also like the world noticing you all at once and holding on tight to each other. Um, I was at the SAG Awards the other night and I was with Leslie and David and it's like, <laughs> I I know their rhythms so well. Like I know exactly how we are all going to be when the head writer is pitching jokes to us. Um, and um, that's, a, it's a real it's a real comfort. It's a real comfort. You know, I, you telling that story makes me think of Anthony's audition where that guy rapped like if he didn't get every word right, he would have to jump out the window. He was so embodied the lyric young, scrappy and hungry that there was just no universe in which he wasn't walking out of the room with the job. In this segment, what would Anthony Ramos ask Lynn on end the writer is? He had a few questions, but I'm going to just skip to these two. He says... Was there ever a time where you were so scared to write about something, but you did it anyway? How did you overcome that fear? And if you did, were you happy you did? Sure. Um, all the time. I, I don't think you, I think part of writing is like leaning into that stuff. I, I, the first thing that pops to mind um, is Quiet Uptown from Hamilton. Um, I... That's my worst fear. My worst fear is losing my child. Um, and I don't know any other way around writing other than to genuinely put yourself in that position and write until it feels true. So it's a shitty place to put yourself and a horrible and scary place to put yourself. But you have to go there to get, to get the truth out. Um, and and that's, that's the gig. That is truly the gig. You've got to go to the scariest places uh, and come back with stuff. I love Hades Town. That's one of my favorite new musicals. Um, but the metaphor inside that of like, when you go to hell, keep going, and you have to go back, and you're you're you're, you're going for a reason. <laughs> um, so you know that's 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 the gig. Like if it's not scary, like he also asked, who are your favorite songwriters besides Ross Golan? But you could use composers if you want. <laughs> I'll put them yeah. in a lineup. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I, I'm always, um, I'm always just kind of uh, looking for new songwriters and things that like articulate ways th in in thing ways 
things in ways I hadn't heard before. Um, I had the great joy of um, one of my students when I taught English has become an incredible songwriter. Her name is Ali Deneen. Um, and I follow her on Patreon so I can hear her demos first. Uh, she wrote a song called uh, What You Know that is maybe my favorite song of the past Amazing. five years um, that feels so much about our moment, but I know was kind of written before this moment. Um, and, um, you know, I am... You know, I, I, I listen to every Lil Wayne feature with interest. Um, I always feel like the Joker. Where I'm like, where does he get those wonderful toys? <laughs> like, I just, I don't understand how that guy's brain gets from A to B to C in his metaphors and his punchlines. Um, and I'm always sort of listening to the rappers that surprise me and, and can still surprise yeah. me after many years. Um, so lyrically, that's that's one where I'm like, can I just sit? and watch you work. Um, same with Nas, same with, um, and, and the past few albums he's done with Hit Boy. Um, and um, yeah, but I'm always just looking to be surprised. Um, you know, we kind of ghosted over uh, Bring It On, but here's a musical and it's hard to write a musical. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, the accolades that you get within the Heights and you get with Hamilton, you don't get with Bring It On. Not to say that it's not a good musical, but you just, it's just not, it, it isn't at the same level as the other two yeah. as far as critics are concerned. How do you handle that? Um, again, you, you handle it with the perspective that once it's out in the world, it's not yours anymore. But I can tell you when someone tells me, oh, I really love Bring It On, they're going to get a longer conversation yeah. from me. <laughs> than someone who says, my kids have memorized Hamilton. Because first of all, you don't get Hamilton without bringing on. Like the things, again, in my Apex technical tool belt, the things I learned from writing with Amanda Green and writing with Tom Kitt and writing with Jeff Witte and watching the way Tom approaches the piano versus the way I do, the way we're all trying to dig the movie out of Andy Blankenbuehler's head. Um You, we, I just, I, I took so many lessons uh from that. And I went in, to get those lessons. It was not my heart's desire to write a musical about cheerleading. That was not something I grew up wanting to do, but I knew I'm going to learn so much from these people and it has served me uh, so well. And as I watch Ari DeBose scoop up award after award and Adrian Warren uh, scoop up her Tony for Tina and, and know that, you know, with incredible pride that Bring It On is their Broadway debut and it was actually 32 incredible young actors debuts. Um, it's, it's something I'm really proud of um, because it could not have been made by any of uh, these artists individually. It was something, we, it was the only thing yeah, we could make together. that's awesome. Uh, shout out to my sister who directed Bring It On for her, she's a, a, a theater director for her high school. And, and, she, and she just did so, so it, 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 it has a, a recent place in the Golan family. Um, yeah, um, I see Charlie hovering, which means we're running out of time because I got to go to another. Okay. Interview. We have questions from Bobby and Kristen. Um, we have questions from Pasek and Paul, and we have questions from Elizondo. I oh know it's real quick. I'll do, we'll just do this as our last segment. Just going to run yeah. through them. Um, Bobby, what is the craziest place you ever wrote a song? Um, I wrote the lyrics to one of these new Little Mermaid songs in the Acela bathroom uh, on the train to DC. <laughs> Amazing. Kristen, I would ask him which song um, that's out there that would be most inspired by your wife. Oh, God. Um, it would be, uh, uh, that would be enough. That's, that's, the, that's the Vanessa song from Hamilton that resonates with me the most. Pascal Paul said, what's the song spot or a moment that you rewrote 
the most amount of times. Oh, uh, the I want song in every Disney movie I've worked on. That's, it's such, such a long shadow of like Disney hero I want songs that like, that's the one that like fucks me up the most. So yeah, Waiting on a Miracle. There's like three songs before Waiting on a Miracle. Okay. Elizondo said, if you could be the lead singer rapper of any band, past or present, and present, who would it be? Oh man, I'd want to go back to the 70s and like sing back up for Hector Level and like watch him improvise. Amazing. Okay, well, dude, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to see you backstage at, at a Hamilton performance when Tommy brought me and I was like, man, this guy is with his wife and his kids backstage at Hamilton. And I, I thought that that was one of the classiest things as somebody who wants to have who wants to represent people who are, are good husbands and good fathers in the business. And that meant a lot. And I don't think you realize like my trajectory is what, what it is now because of what you did. I would never wow. have met Tommy or lack. I wouldn't have a show on uh, that would have gone off Broadway. I wouldn't be working to get shows on Broadway or other shows off Broadway. I wouldn't be where I'm at if it's not for you. And every time I get to text you about whatever's going on, I love it because I'm, I'm proud of how you represent songwriters and uh, I'm excited that you're my friend. Oh yeah. Likewise, Ross, you're so incredibly talented and kind. And thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm such a big fan of your show. So I'm really glad you finally asked. Mwah. Bye. Mwah. Bye. Okay. Thanks. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirchin, Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.